Please remain standing as we will again open our word this morning and read from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We started this last week. Um, we will continue to do so this week, opening and reading the passage before we, we go into the sermon. So if you would stand out of the honor of the reading of the word of our God. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find a black Bible in the pew in front of you, and you can find 1 Corinthians 9 on page 899 of that Bible. The word of our Lord from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There Paul writes, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense for those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in the hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and that those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but it is not of my own will. But if it is not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we 
and imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of our God. You may be seated. In the year of our Lord, 1215, the lords and barons of England had finally had enough of King John. John ruled without much coherence, was often found to make laws one day and think that he could completely disregard them the next. He thought of himself as above the law, as though he could make laws and he could disregard them in his own life. He had given high and increasingly high and continual taxes upon the barons and the lords because the king of France had taken some of his territory, not just his territory like he took some of England, but he took literally lands that the king himself used and he wanted them back. These high levied taxes, basically to get his backyard markers moved back to where they belong, started to infuriate the barons. And eventually they met up in a meadow outside of Windsor Castle and forced John to sign something called the Magna Carta, the Great Charter. This wasn't just a democratic step. It was the first of its kind in the Western world where a king was actually said to be not above the law, but to be below the law. He was under the law. He was responsible to the law. And the barons and the lords had a right to hold him responsible to the law. The average citizen in England probably didn't feel much from this. But as it trickles down throughout the ages, the Magna Carta becomes sort of a a first domino to fall and the stepping stones towards true democracy. America ratcheted that up by giving it to all landowners and eventually after the Civil War and through women's suffrage, giving it to all citizens. Americans are the recipients of rights and we love our rights. We talk about them in a way the vast majority of people throughout history just couldn't possibly understand. We cherish them, we uphold them, And we are almost sure that losing them is a near-death experience for us. And Paul has referred to the rights of the Corinthians in this issue of eating meat. Instrumental, back in 8-9, was his prodding of them, of their rights. He says, take care that this right of yours, you have a right, Paul says, to eat this meat. Offered to idols, even in idol temples, you have a right. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block. To the weak. Corinthians do indeed have a right, but Paul argues strongly that they ought to lay down that right for the good of others. As we begin chapter 9, though, and we read, you would not be alone in thinking that Paul has finished that and moved on to something else completely. It's a, it seems to be a whole new direction. He doesn't talk about meat at all. Instead, he's talking about his own payment, his, his foregoing of the right of, of having churches pay him for his living. Instead, he is out being a tent maker, making his own money so that they don't have to re- he doesn't have to rely upon them and they don't have to support him. But Paul is a wise man and he is attempting to make a larger point. It seems as though what he might be asking these Corinthians is actually quite a lot. After all, remember, he sides with the strong in principle. He thinks that their theology is the right theology. He does agree with them that there is no problem with eating meat offered to idols in principle. As one commentator put it, Paul seems to be asking for the strong to 
defer to the superstitious scruples of his most ignorant converts. People who don't have understanding. People who are superstitious in how they handle themselves. And Paul is saying, you've got to stop eating meat for them. And to lay down rights to do that, well, that's asking a lot. Chapter 9 then shows that Paul means what he says, and he lives out what he says. He lives by the very principle that he provides. He is not asking them to do something that he is unwilling to do, but something that he has always been doing. So while chapter 9 might seem like a sort of digression, a separate argument altogether, it is of a piece of what Paul has asked of the Corinthians before. Remembering that will, I think, help us keep our bearings as Paul takes the long way around to bring a short point home. So what is Paul arguing in the ninth chapter? First, Paul argues that rights are real. They are real. Paul here seems to be trying to kill two birds with one stone. He, he's going to pick an example that's not exactly random. So when Paul is out preaching the gospel, he is acting in the Greco-Roman thinking of it like a philosopher. And philosophers only have a couple of ways to actually make a living. They don't have universities. They don't have think tanks. There's not publishing houses for them to publish their ideas. There's only a handful of ways that people who do this kind of thinking for a living can actually make that living. They can have a patron. They can have one particular person who is going to take them into their household, provide them with room and board and, and extra money so that they can then teach from that house. It's one way to do it. They can also require people to pay for their teaching. That is, hey, Aristotle, we, we hear that your teaching's excellent. Can we have some? He says, sure. Three monthly payments of $39.99, and the first installment is yours, and we'll catch you up on whatever you might miss after that. And the better they were, the more money they were paid. And as Paul points out here, the other apostles did precisely this. It might not have been much. Peter wasn't living high off of the church in Jerusalem, which was very poor, but Peter wasn't working either. Peter was actually being supported by that poor church. The other apostles were being supported by the churches that they found. To the Corinthians then, Paul's weak preaching and what they probably think insipid leadership was demonstrated by the fact that he didn't have any money from any of the churches. They would look at it and say, those churches aren't even paying you for what you're doing. How poor of an apostle must he be if that's the case? If the giving of money was directly correlated to how effective you were, and Paul didn't make any money, I mean, is he even really an apostle? This thought, which apparently is just in seed form here, Paul does make it clear that there are some who are sort of sitting in judgment of him in this thing. Nevertheless, blossoms fully in 2 Corinthians. But Paul makes use of it here. He says, listen, I am an apostle. You of all people know I'm an apostle because I founded your church. If I'm an apostle to anyone, it is to you. I have seen Jesus our Lord. You yourself are, in effect, the workmanship of my, my apostleship. And then he goes on to make sure that they understand that he deserves to be paid for his work as an apostle. He uses five different examples throughout this text of exactly how it is that he can support this claim. First, he says, the apostles. 
The apostles do this. The other apostles, Cephas, the brothers of the Lord, probably looking at James there. He says they all do this. And not only do they do that, but the comment about wives isn't just that Paul has the right to be married, but that he has the right to be married and to take a wife with him so that he has the right not just to be supported, but to have a spouse with him on the mission field who is likewise supported. He turns to then common illustrations in verse 7 and 8, or in verse 7 at least, does a soldier serve at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit, or who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? And they would have answered all of those, no one. If you are going to serve, you make money by serving. The state pays you, the city pays you for your service. If you are going to plant a vineyard, you expect that you are going to make money off of that vineyard. You're going to eat some of the produce of that vineyard. These are common illustrations. Paul thinks, just to cut them off, maybe, you, maybe you're just not sold by all of this, this common illustration that this is a normal thing to have happen. Maybe you're not going to buy that. And you're saying it's not actually part of the law. God hasn't commanded this. And Paul's going to turn around and say, yeah, actually, God did command this very thing. So the third example he gives us from the law. He says in Deuteronomy 25, 4, God says, do not muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain. You and others can look at that and say, well, Paul, that, that's talking about oxes. It's not talking about you. And we can talk about the hermeneutics of that. The whole chapter, 25, everything around it is talking about how people are to be dealt with. So it's clear that this seems to be a metaphor even in Deuteronomy. But Paul gives us two ways to read the Old Testament consistently. The Old Testament is written for us. It is not for other people. It is for us. It is written about what's going on today. It's not written just about what's going on back then. And it's human-centric. It's not really about the cattle. It's not about the birds in the air, although we can learn things from that. But it's about us. God has written it about us and for us. So Paul says this is actually about us. His then fourth point is that God not only decrees that this ought to be so, but then he puts it into practice because the people who serve in the temple get paid by that temple service. Toward the bottom in verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. God thought it was so important that they not be muzzled while they're treading out the grain that they are allowed to take even of the sacrifices. The last point that Paul makes in this is that Jesus himself has said this. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living off of the gospel. And so Paul is saying, listen, whether or not I make use of that right, you have to know that that right is real. That right is incredibly real. And so the, the end result of this is even though Paul is calling upon people to give up their rights, he's, he's calling upon the Corinthians to give up on their rights, he's calling upon you in certain ways and shapes and forms to give up your rights just because he's asking that, it doesn't mean that those rights aren't real, that they're negligible, or that they're unimportant. But rather, they are real. They are important, and they're given by God, used in history, confirmed by Christ, and by common good sense. And this right, both of meat and money, especially here, because these are given by God. And we need to be really careful to not contort 
the rights issued by man and the rights issued by God, because those are not the same thing. The rights of man are always fungible, they're changeable, they're open to edits, and they're open to negligence. I mean, this is why we have amendments to the Constitution, because we know we can amend the Constitution, we can change the rights of people. And we also know that those rights can be, well, they can be ignored. Jim Crow was a hundred-year experiment on ignoring the amendments to the Constitution given after the Civil Rights, Civil War. God has given you these things, and they cannot be taken away. Nor does God give the rights that we necessarily give to other men in this world. We can love the First Amendment, but there is much in that First Amendment that God says you don't have a right to do. You don't have a right to free speech. Before our Lord, he will judge every idle word. Blasphemy might be open on the table for the U.S. government to not prosecute you for. I guarantee you the Lord will do so and especially for open worship. The government might not be able to set what the worship of God is to be like going forward, or that God that you would worship going forward, but I guarantee you, the Lord in heaven does. Don't confuse the two. Gods cannot change. The rights that he has given to you are real, and they are always there for you. There are areas of our lives that are red, that things that you cannot do, The Lord has said, you are not ever to do these things. There are green things, things that God says you are always to do. You are to go on them. You are always to do these things. You are not to commit adultery. You're not to steal. You're not to murder. Never okay. You are always to be generous and kind, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You are to do those things always. But then there's a bunch of stuff in the middle. I know if I'm going red and green, I should use yellow in the middle. It doesn't work. So we're going to call that gray for no good reason. Other than it's just, it's not black and white. We don't have laws in these things. And clearly, on any of these things, there's a line by which you cannot cross. So you can eat whatever you want to. If you think that the protein of the future is crickets, go out and partake. Don't bring them to potluck next week, probably. But you can try it. I might try one. But you can eat whatever you want. Now, there comes a limit to that, right? Because there is gluttony as a sin, and it's a true sin, a real sin, but you can eat whatever you want. Drink whatever you want. But there is a limit to that, where it tips over into sin. What you watch, what you read, how you spend your time. The Lord has not laid out all the details of your life, and he gives you tremendous freedom. And where that freedom exists, you are, for the most part, able to do what you want to with it without falling into sin. Paul has just gotten done in chapter 7, giving us one of those gray areas. Marriage. Are you going to marry or are you not going to marry? That's not an issue of sin. That isn't an issue of sin. It's a gray area. You have a right to do that either way. But notice that these rights also come in different measures, and I think that this goes to what Paul is also arguing here. The Corinthians have a right to eat meat, but Paul's right is slightly stronger Eating meat places no sort of limitation on anybody, but Paul has the right to go before churches and demand of them that they support him. He has a right to go before them and say, you don't have a right to withhold support from me. Paul can demand things out of other people. It makes his right all the more strong. It's a command from the Lord. And at the same time, 
Paul says, I will forego it. Because while rights are real, the most important part of this is that, number two, rights are relative. Rights are relative. They're not ultimate. Paul says, even though I have this right, in verse 15, I don't make use of this right. He said the same thing further up. Verse 12, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He says, I would rather die than to have this right taken from me. I lay it down. I'm I'm not asking you for money. If you think that I laid all this out because I'm asking you for money, Paul says, you've got the wrong idea. I would rather die than take a red cent from you Corinthians. Not because he's afraid of the Corinthians, but because they're removing his boasting. It's interesting then what that reward looks like. His boasting and his reward. He says in verse 18, what then is my reward? So what is this great reward, Paul? What is it? It's not material because that's the very thing he's eschewing. It's not heavenly because he's not waiting for it. It's not kept for him. It's here and now. It's not even psychological. He says nothing about, this makes me feel better about myself. I'm glad that I'm not being sort of under you, relying upon you, that I'm a free man and that I can make my own way. It's not psychological in any way. What he ends up saying is the reward is the deed itself. He says, what is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge as to not make full use of my right of it in the gospel. In other words, his reward is presenting the gospel, which is a gift, as a gift. That's an amazing little thing. The whole reward of it is that he can model in the giving of the gospel the very truth of the gospel, which he calls in many places a gift. It is holy and utterly free to anyone who hears of it that Jesus Christ has come to freely give the good news of redemption in his blood. And every single part of our salvation is free to us because we owe nothing for it. God gives it to us. God accomplishes it all. Paul continually relies upon the doctrine of election to show this, that before the foundation of the world, God has elected those who would come to faith. He talks about it in terms of regeneration, that God provides a new creation and a new birth, the very metaphors of which are picked out because you can't do it. Justification comes by the blood of Jesus Christ. Adoption is by being unified to him. Sanctification is through the work of the Spirit. Liberation, because Christ has freed you. Expiation, because Christ has cleansed you. Reconciliation, because Christ has broken the walls of hostility, both between us and God and between us and one another. Ultimately, glorification, every single step in salvation, is utterly and totally free to those who would believe. And Paul says, That is why I forego any payment, so that I might appear all the more like Jesus. Paul's reward is that he can make the gospel appear as much like the gospel as possible. He doesn't charge, even after the fact, for the preaching of the gospel. Even though we want to be very clear, such charge is perfectly right and acceptable and good in God's sight because all the other apostles did it. 
but Paul sees this as something that he can do to glorify Jesus. He says, although I am free from all, in verse 19, I made myself a servant to all. When he says I'm free from all, he says, I have a right to be free from this responsibility. God is not commanding me to be a servant to all in this way. He's not commanding me to work. It's not a red area. He's not saying you can't be free in this area. It's not a green area where he says you must be hitched to them in this way. It's a gray area. He says, I am free. Nevertheless, I make myself a servant to all. I forgo my rights. I put them aside. Why? He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them and its blessings. The idea that is expressed in verses 19 through 23 to the Jews became a Jew in order to win the Jews, to those under the law became under the law, to those outside the law, outside the law. A lot can be said about that. The idea there, the main idea is simply this. And Paul is prepared to do everything in his power to eliminate any misunderstanding and any misapprehension so that the gospel will be clearly preached and clearly understood. That he will have nothing culturally come in the way of his proclamation of the gospel. That even the law itself cannot be some sort of barricade to the preaching of the gospel. And so he will gladly subsume himself under the law. He will gladly free himself from the law. Whatever those people need, he will do. Every four years, America becomes infatuated with something that they immediately forget and, and go away from. One is the World Cup, because we just don't care about soccer no matter how much the rest of the world does, because we're awesome. The second thing is gymnastics. As, as we now are heading into the summer games, we're going to get infatuated with gymnastics again. And gymnasts are amazing athletes who are capable of two things that are not always associated with one another. One is that they have an incredible amount of flexibility. And it's more flexibility than just being able to put your hands on the floor while your legs are straight. They're flexible in a number of ways that you and I will never be flexible in until we fall down a flight of stairs, right? That's the only time that we will ever do anything that approximates what they do. They are incredibly flexible. But a good gymnast isn't just flexible. They have to be immensely strong. A foundation is needed. Legs that won't wobble and arms that will hold. Paul does this very well. Paul knows immediately where he must be flexible, where he must bend. What are those cultural things, those secondary things, those tertiary things that simply don't matter in light of the gospel? And I will bend those things into a pretzel if I need to. But he also knows where he must be strong and sure. What are the true necessities of the gospel? Paul will not budge on the historicity of what Jesus Christ has done, that he has come in the flesh, that he has died, that he has been resurrected. Later on, we're going to see that the, the Corinthians are hedging on the resurrection, and Paul says, you cannot do that. If you do that, you give up on all of it. He will not budge on the nature of Christ, repeatedly talking about Jesus as though he is God in the flesh. He will not hedge on the necessity of faith, not only to believe the right things, but to walk in light of that faith. He will not budge on those things. He will not budge on the need for new life, for the Spirit to be an abiding and working influence in you. 
But on any cultural, any secondary, any tertiary thing, no matter how important it might seem, he is more than willing to be flexible on that. But there are certain things here we've got to be cautious about thinking that Paul does. First, and most importantly, Paul is not asking for you to superficially do these things. He doesn't say, I appeared to be weak for the sake of the weak. Paul uses really strong language. He says, I became somebody who was weak. He, he did more. He agrees with the strong. He, he is certainly like one of the strong, but he is, he's saying, I, I have so identified with them that it's like, I be, and you can hear, by the way, in the background, his striving to be like Christ, who became like us in every way. And Paul can't do that, but he's doing everything he can to be like that. Churches and Christians can do this all the time, superficially trying to be something they're not to appeal to other people who aren't there. Churches who want to appeal to the youth and go out and buy some just for men, right? Not very much anymore, but a little bit, right? Wear different clothes, sing different songs, talk differently. We can do those superficial things, but that isn't what their problem is with the gospel. That's not, that's not actually dealing with the issue of what Paul is dealing with here. These superficial ways of adjusting ourselves are just not it. Paul wants people to embody, to be able to help those who are hurting, who have been hurt, who, who don't understand. We might, we might say, hey, we will, we will do everything we can to make it clear that what you ought to be offended by is the offense of the gospel. Outside of that, there should be nothing amongst us that is offensive. If you are offended because we don't worship the way you worship, if you're offended because we think that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of all people in the world, if you're offended because of the things that he calls us to do, we say you ought to do, on those we will not budge. If you're offended because of a, the way in which we present those things, if you're offended because of our sin, if you're offended because we say that this is the way that we will culturally appropriate these things and no other way, then we do not have the spirit that Paul has here. It's also worth noting that he talks here about salvation. He says, I do it, I become all things to all people, but that by all means I might save some which is incredibly helpful for us to understand, given that he's not just talking about evangelism there. In the context, he is talking about weak brothers and sisters who are already people of the Lord. They have already said they believe. And he's saying, I will become weak so that I might save them. Not that they need to come to faith, but Paul is saying so that I can keep them in the faith. Salvation for Paul is not just seen in coming forward and raising your hand during a call, giving into the peer pressure you see around you to become a Christian, it is seen in perseverance. As Paul writes in, first, or in Colossians 1, 22 and 23, Jesus has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul well, even for those who are inside the church, bend himself into a pretzel that they might persevere to the end. Your rights are real and true. 
You ought to see the importance of them. But they are also completely and utterly relative to the work that you do for the gospel. Third, rights demand restraint. Rights demand restraint. Just because rights are given doesn't mean that you should anytime and anywhere use them. The use of rights requires wisdom and insight. And what's more, because they require wisdom and insight, they require discipline and restraint. Don't think that such things will come easily. Much of what Paul says here is culturally difficult for us. We don't understand the thing about how teachers get paid. We don't understand why they would place an importance on that. We don't think that way. But when it comes to his little athletic metaphors, we understand that well. If the Corinthians liked sports, they don't like it nearly as much as Americans like sports. And so he's, he is really picking a good example here for us. Do you not know that in a race all runners win, right? Do you not know how they discipline themselves? Do you not know how they live their lives for this? They literally make a living out of this today. So how do they do it? When they, there's only one team that wins a championship. There's only one person who wins the race so that they do everything they can, everything that's within their power to devote themselves to that. They don't work aimlessly. They don't do worthless things, but they run very hard to win a prize. The prizes that the athletes wore back then were perishable. Literally, they were made out of celery. To talk to you about how worthless that must be, the only thing good about that is at least they weren't trying to eat it, right? If any vegetable is worthless, it's celery. It's a horrible little vegetable, but they used to make crowns out of the stuff. Paul says they work tirelessly for that. This is what they're striving for. You strive just as hard, but not for a celery wreath, but you strive for one that is imperishable, that will be kept in heaven and in glory for you. To rightly exercise your rights, to do so in a way that highlights the work of Jesus and in a manner that makes clear that you love your neighbor, takes effort and it takes sacrifice. It means that you have to somehow restrain your rights at times because you just, you just can't. You can't claim your rights everywhere and all the time and still act in a loving way, as loving as you can toward your neighbor, as loving as you can toward the outside world. Paul's clear. He is not asking the strong here to do something that he is not willing to do. He is more than willing to forego his rights, which are very, very strong rights. He's willing to set aside what is quite clearly a good for him. He has self-control, and he is willing to sacrifice for them so that all may come to know the Lord. It takes restraint. It means you have to sometimes hold back on good things in order to make better things. Meat offered to idols may or may not be a good thing in your viewpoint, but Paul is sure of this. Forsaking it for the good of the weak so that they might be encouraged in the Lord by the love of actually foregoing that, of forsaking it, this is indeed a better thing than anything that meat could be. So what are we willing or unwilling to give up on? What exactly are you willing to forego for the sake not only of the outside world but of brothers and sisters within the church? The big three are always time, money, and effort. Are you willing to give up of your time? As we said, the Lord is very clear. You're free to do a lot of things with your time. 
Your time is yours. It is possessed by you. You are the one who, who can make arrangements, can make schedules. But are you willing to let go of that right to be bound by brothers and sisters, to spend time with them, praying with them here, encouraging them here, engaging with them in fellowship here? Do you spend time doing that? Or do you think, nah, Sunday morning is enough? That's all I need. That's all I want to spend. That's all I can spend. Are you willing to give up the right that you have? And let's be very clear. When we, each and every one of you, when we have gone through membership classes at Crossway, we say very clearly, we hold you accountable to one thing, that is being here on Sunday morning. There is nothing else that you have to do to be a, a good member and good standing of this church. Because we cannot impose upon you rights that the Lord does not impose upon you. We refuse to do that. I'm not saying that you need to do it. I'm saying, will you forego your right to spend your rest of your time the way you want to spend it in order to help other people in this church, in order to grow yourself, in order to encourage them, to open up scripture with them, to pray with them? Money. How do you use your money? Spending on yourself is fine. The Lord has given you money to do that. It is your money. You do not need to spend it on other people. But do you also use it to provide mercy and rest to those who cannot afford it otherwise? Are you using your money to encourage others in the Lord? Are you setting aside the right to use your money however you see fit, to do what is right before the sight of the Lord? What about effort? Do you do these, whether spending time or money, only when they come easy to you? The Lord has not told you that you have to go above and beyond. It is a right. Nevertheless, to truly walk as Paul does requires effort. Effort in showing mercy. Effort in being present. Effort in leaving those who are discomforted in comfort. The question that we ought to ask ourselves is simple. Do you think that your brothers or sisters in the Lord are worth that sacrifice? Do you think that people in this world are worth setting aside your rights for so that they might come to know the Lord? And then once they know the Lord, are they still worth you setting aside your rights so that they might be encouraged in the Lord? Paul would answer, yes. Jesus quite clearly answers yes. We ought to answer the same as well. Our Lord took on death that each of us might have life. Let us set aside any rights we might need to, if it will in any way help to ensure the salvation of others. Let us pray. Our Lord, you have said that anyone who follows you must take up their cross daily and follow you. You, who although rich, became poor that we might be rich. You, who took on flesh in the form of a servant for the good of us all, how can we follow you if we're not willing to give up even good things for our brothers and sisters? And we all will admit and confess that this is difficult for us. Help us to be like you. Help us to follow you and to trust that such cross-bearing is good even for us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us our song of response, it is well with my soul.